remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. We're back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1, Genesis 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do, her, to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Lord, I I do pray this morning that you would take your word, bring it close to us, cause our ears to hear, instruct our hearts. Lord, use um, your word by your spirit's power to transform us and to change us so that we might not only see Christ and worship him, but be like him. Transform us into your children uh, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we live in a time that um, it seems to be getting closer and closer to that of Big Brother. Cameras are everywhere. Um, Things that we do are tracked. We don't even know that they're happening all the time. And normally when we think of things like the cameras and the all-seeing cameras, we usually think of it in a negative sense. We think of getting caught, don't we? Um, I think that shows us something about our hearts uh, in terms of why we react that way, that we don't want to be seen for fear of getting caught. 
But cameras also can protect us. Uh, we use cameras for good things. And uh, sometimes seeing things can be good. You've seen news reports where the bad guy gets caught, you know, because of what? He was caught on camera. Uh, just before we moved down here, the house we were staying in, a missions house on church property, uh, was broken into, and the church had cameras, and it caught a nice shot of the guy who was walking out with all of our stuff. And they were able to catch him. Not get our stuff back, but they were able to catch him. So cameras can serve as a way of uh, also kind of protecting us when we think of this. Well, a lot of times when we think of the God who sees, it causes fear because of we think of getting caught, just like with a camera. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good that we know that God sees. It's good that we know that he is aware, not only of what we do, but even what we think and what's in our hearts. But the God who sees is also a tremendous comfort because the God who sees continues to love us and to pursue us and has redeemed us in spite of who we are and what we've done. And as is in the case of Hagar, we see the God who sees not only goes... I mean, Hagar in this story is the least likely that we would have picked for God to go after. And that that is indeed who God pursues. God knows when we have been sinned against. God knows when we have experienced injustice. And this is an incredible comfort for us as well. When we left off in our study in Genesis back in November, uh, you may remember that God had ratified the covenant with Abram. And if you remember, he put Abram into a deep sleep. And the reason for that was to show his commitment to and power over the covenant that God alone would keep the covenant, that Abram would not have any part in keeping the covenant. He would never be able to look back with pride and say, I did my part. He was put, he was knocked out, put into a deep sleep. And as we look back through biblical history, isn't that what we've seen? That even though God's people have broken his covenant again and again and again, that God has been faithful and he has kept his covenant. And all we have to do is look to the cross to see that he has fulfilled every promise that he's made. And so we come to this point in the story, and it might be easy for us to think that, okay, Abram's got it now. He's seen this incredible vision. He's heard the very words of God. And so he's got it. He trusts God fully. There's there's not going to be any wavering for Abram anymore. I mean, he's experienced something that few of us have, or any of us probably have ever experienced, something so unique, so tremendous, and now he will surely not doubt the promises of God. And yet, what is the story of Genesis 16? It is the story of another tragedy, one that echoes the strains of the story of the Garden in Eden, where we see husbands in both stories act with impotence and cowardice. We see couples in both stories enticed by their own wishes to then conspire together with their visions blurred and their memories uh, faded of the promises and the commands that God has given them. And in both accounts, sin results. Sin that changes from a human perspective the course of history. But lest we get too detached from the story and think that this is only some tragedy that we're going to read about today, let's remember this is our story as well.
We, we, are, we are them, they are us, as I have said a number of times. We too are so easily led astray. We too who have the entire canon of Scripture. So I, when I said that we haven't experienced what Abram experienced, we haven't. He experienced something so unique and so incredible. And yet we have more revelation than he had. So we are without excuse in terms of doubting the goodness and the promises of God. And yet we too are led away by our desires. James writes, the, desi- the desire when it, when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And that's exactly what we see in our own hearts and our own lives. Genesis 16 is a story of a shortcut. It hit, hits close to home because we too are a people who like shortcuts. Failing to take God at his word, failing to trust God in his timing... We like to do things or try to do things in our own strength and by our own wisdom, don't we? But thankfully, the story doesn't end here. God does keep his promise to Abram and to Sarai, even in spite of their sin. And of course, this gives us hope because we know that the God who kept his promise to Abraham is also going to keep his promise to us. That even while we were sinners, Christ sent his son to die for us. He rescues us whether we've been sinned against or whether we are the sinner. He is committed to his covenant people. And in that, there is great hope and comfort. The story opens in verse 1 with the reminder that Sarai is still barren, that she's unable to have children. We've been told this over and over again. She's now aged another 10 years. So this is, this is moving beyond just beyond childbearing age, Sarai's getting old. I mean, this is, Abram and Sarai should not be even thinking about children at this point. And yet, they desire a child. And they've been promised a child. And from a human perspective, it does seem more impossible. So put yourselves in their shoes and, and, and understand why they would think this way. God has prevented me, she says, from having children. So she comes up with her own plan to give her servant Hagar to her husband as his wife in order to bear a surrogate offspring. Now, there's some irony in this plan. Do you remember Genesis 12, what Abram did with Sarai when they went down to Egypt? And he was fearful of his own life, and he was so willing to give his wife away. And now here Sarai is doing the same thing. And this is troubling for us in in a number of ways, but particularly because we don't understand this culturally. I mean, none of us are in this practice. We don't have, um, you know, maidservants, and we don't think of of giving them away if we were barren. But this was a culturally acceptable practice. Um, I won't read all the details from Hammurabi and those other old pieces, but this was something that was practiced, something that was done. And yet, even when a practice is culturally acceptable or even legal in a culture, it doesn't mean that it's pleasing to God. God had made his plan clear for marriage in the garden in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But Sarai's deceived. She's enticed by her own desire. It's a good desire to have a son. It's not a bad thing that she's enticed away to. But in the way that she pursues it, it's wrong because it goes against the revealed word of God. And so in verse 2, Sarai's words to her husband, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
It's interesting that Sarai recognizes God's sovereign hand in her life. The Lord has prevented me. She knows who God is. She's not failing to recognize who he is. And yet she fails to remember the promise or trust him in his timing. And so she doesn't believe that he will do what he said he will do. And Abram goes along with it. He listens to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand this to think that husbands are not to listen to their wives. All the husbands, wake up, because I don't want to get any calls from your wives this week of them telling me that you said that they didn't have to listen. That's not what I said. That's not what the text says. Okay. In fact, we don't have to go very far in the story. If you jump over to Genesis 21, we see that God says to Abraham, um, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. So this isn't about Abram listening or not listening. It's about what he listened to. It's about the content of what Sarai had said that Abram should have stood up to. He should have put his foot down. He should have said, no, God has promised us a son. This is not the way to go about it. We shouldn't take things into our own hands. So it was the content of what he said. Griffith Thomas writes, Though Sarah's motive was good, genuine, and involved self-sacrifice, the proposal was wrong in itself, and at the same time wrong in its method of obtaining the end sought. It was wrong against God, whose word had been given and whose time should have been waited. It was wrong against Abraham, leading him out of the pathway of patient waiting for God's will. It was wrong against Hagar and did not recognize her individuality and the rights in the matter. It was wrong against Sarah herself, robbing her of a high privilege as well as leading to disobedience. And so it's much like the account that we see in the garden when Adam was silent and didn't speak up and say, God said no to that tree when Eve came with the fruit and he should have spoken up. And so Abram also remained passive and they walked through the door of sin. And he took Hagar according to verse 4 and she conceived. So the desire for a son, a good desire, led Abram and Sarai down this reckless path. And then in that second part of verse 4, we see that after she conceived, Hagar looked at her mistress with contempt. Sin always wrecks relationships. Always. There is no sin that is harmless or private. We are deceiving ourselves if we try and convince ourselves of this. It wrecks our lives and it wrecks our relationships. And just like we saw in the garden then after all of this, the blame game starts, doesn't it? Remember the blame game in the garden? Here it is again in verse 5. Sarah turns to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Wait, Sarah, I thought this was your plan. (laughs) I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Oh, wait, now you want to bring the Lord back into the equation here. It sounds a little too convenient, Sarah. Well, the problem is, is you have a situation where everybody's sinning. All three parties are entering into the sin. No one's taking a stand here. And not only do all three sin, but all three become victims of each other's sin. And this is what sin does. makes a big mess. Sarai experiences the contempt of Hagar. Abram receives the blame of Sarai and throws his hands in the air. Behold, your servants in your power do as you please. Hagar is dealt harshly by Sarai. She... uh, Uh, 
throws her hands up in the same sense and, and runs away. Sin cuts, sin destroys, it demeans, it vandalizes, it ruins. Sin gives birth to death. And the consequences are life-altering. And because of Sarai's harshness toward Hagar, Hagar flees. She goes back home. That's where she runs, goes back to Egypt. That's where she's headed. She had been a participant in the sin. She had been a part of the adultery, but she's also a victim because in her position as maidservant, she had the least of power in the equation. And even though she carries Abram's son, she seems, uh, seems helpless, feels helpless, and runs away. And this is something that we can relate to. Again, put ourselves into the story here and understand not only why Hagar would run, in such a situation, feel so helpless. But we often do the same thing. We may not literally flee. We may not literally run away. But we often will turn inward or we'll remove ourselves from other people. Often to our greatest detriment, we do this with the body of Christ. We remove ourselves from other believers. This is incredibly harmful to ourselves. Sometimes we run to an old sin pattern. Other times we simply stop praying, we stop reading God's word, we stop relating to God, we flee, we run away. But fleeing is never the answer. And thankfully we have a God who is not only waiting mercifully for us, He's a God who pursues us. He's a God who leaves the 99 and comes after the 1. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Hagar. Help and hope for Hagar are not to be found in Egypt They're not to be found by running and going home. Her deliverer, and indeed our deliverer, always come in a person. They come at the person of God. The narrator tells us it's the angel of the Lord who finds her in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is distinguished from the generic messenger angel. In many of our translations, angel of the Lord is all capitalized. It's It's a title. And... Here, as in other accounts where the angel of the Lord's mentioned, he is identified as God. And so many scholars would argue that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So the difference between, and you can always tell this, the difference between the generic angel, messenger angel, and the angel of the Lord is that the angel of the Lord never refuses worship. The regular angels always would refuse worship. Because what happens when anybody sees an angel? Down on their face, right? There's, there's fear. Angels aren't cute little cherubim, you know, things that you see in the Hallmark store. Angels are fear, fearful uh, creatures, and so people would end up on their face, and regular angels would always say, stand up. But the angel of the Lord doesn't refuse worship. And so we look further down in our text in verse 13, and we see that both Hagar and the narrator Moses both refer to this as being the Lord God. So it is God who has pursued Hagar, and he gently calls to her, And he directs her to return to Abram and Sarai. Return to your mistress and submit to her, he says in verse 9. And so she's now to reverse her course and to humble herself by returning. But God also gives her words of hope. He comes to her so mercifully and so caringly and gives her words of encouragement. He tells her that he's going to multiply her offspring. And it echoes the promise to Abraham. Too many that that can even be counted. Wait, this isn't the line of promise. Why is she getting this? She's going to bear a son. He's going to have the name Ishmael. And God says, it's because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That's what the name Ishmael means. The Lord hears. And so now every time Hagar calls out to her son's name, 
You can imagine what this was like with a little boy growing up. She's going to be reminded herself that it was God who heard her in her distress. But Ishmael, as I said, is not the son of promise. He's not the one that's, that God had foretold. Verse 12 says that he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, that his hand is going to be against everyone, that everyone's hand would be against him, and his dwelling would be in opposition to his brothers and theirs to him. And certainly we have seen this in history, echoing the prophetic word of God with the continual conflict that we have seen in this area and among this people group. Hagar's response to the word of God is one of worship, and she ascribes a name to God. She calls him El Roy. She's the only one in Scripture to name God, to give God a name. What an incredible honor. He is the God who sees. That's what she says. This distressed Hagar witnesses God as rescuer, as redeemer, the one who hears the cries of the afflicted, who sees the hurt of the oppressed, and saves. That is who our God is. I think sometimes because as Americans we are so comfortable and we have so many ways of dealing with our problems that we forget the heart of God is the heart of a rescuer, the heart of a savior. We think of it in terms of our sins and yeah, our sins were dealt with and we think of that from a long time ago. But God is a God who redeems, who saves his people, who pursues his people today, right now. God cares about you. He sees. He hears. She says, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. There's something to cross-stitch on a pillow. You know, what a comforting phrase. That our God is the one who looks after me, who takes care of me. This is the heart of God. This is who our God is. He looks after us and takes care of us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sins, our fears, our failures, our needs. And he responds with love and mercy toward us. And here he rescues Hagar and sends her back. The well where all of this happened is given the same name. The well of the living one who sees me is what it means. Even though sin had abounded, lots of sin to go around. Everybody, there's plenty of blame to spread among Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And of course, lasting consequences. Literally, the course of history is never going to be the same because of this event. God shows himself merciful in keeping his promises. His love is on display in an incredible way toward his children, but especially to Hagar. Isn't it incredible? Again, we're, we're all fans of Abram and Sarai because we know their kind of position. It's easy to be fans of them. But Hagar? Who's a fan of Hagar? And yet, we're in a sense all called to be because we see what God has done for the oppressed, for the outcast, for the one who has no voice, the maidservant, the least power in the equation. Next Sunday, January 19th, is a day that Christians in America mark as the sanctity of life. Sunday. And I'm jumping ahead because I feel like this story hits why we mark this Sunday. doesn't matter what Sunday we really mark it. We can mark it any Sunday, but this gives us time to maybe prepare a little bit that, that we're thinking this way. We live in a culture and a time where the killing of the unborn is not only legal, but it's celebrated. And the story of Hagar is not only an account of of her preservation, but also the life of the child in her womb. And even though he was conceived in sin, his life still mattered. Because he was knit together 
in the womb by the hand of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And as the people of God, we should not remain in silence over uh, or in the face of abortion in our country. We must stand against this for those who have no voice, for the weakest, those who have no power. It is God who has called us to take this stand because He Himself said, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. There is no one more weak, more poor, more needy, or without a voice than a baby, and even more so a baby that has been yet born. And Proverbs 14.31 tells us, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And Proverbs 31.8, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And finally, Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These commands are not only designed to move us toward action, but they show us the heart of our God, His great love, which He continues to show us throughout redemptive history, not only in this story, but in, through, throughout all of Scripture that is culminated at the cross. Well, the story of Abram and Sarai, even Hagar, is far from over. There's more good, bad, and ugly to come. But God's plans have not been thwarted by their sin. God is not sitting in heaven at this point going, what am I going to do? God knows exactly what was going to happen, and He indeed is sovereign over all these matters. He will bring about the promised son. He will be born to Sarah as promised, well beyond her childbearing years. But they were going to have to wait. And they were going to have to wait because it was God's plan. And it was going to be through his plan that he displays his power. And so even when you and I are tempted to take the shortcut, to take matters into our own hands, we should remember the story of a faithless people and their faithful God. That God's ways and his his timing are always perfect. It's always for our good and for his glory. And there's no better picture of this than this table that is set before us today. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, at the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. According to the promise, going all the way back to Genesis 3, all the way through Abram, this, this promised one would come, would deliver good on the promises that God had made through Isaac, through Jacob, down through the line, would come and redeem God's people. And in this table, we see the elements, the body and the blood shed and broken for us so that we might be adopted as sons and made heirs of the kingdom. And so today, may we rejoice in the God who sees, who takes care of us, who although we were sinners, and while we were sinners, sent Christ to die for us, who cares for us not only in our daily needs, but cares for us in the ultimate way by redeeming us from the curse of sin and death through His death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see Your heart as rescuer and redeemer so that we might take comfort and be given hope in this. But Lord, also so that we might emulate You, 
that we might have eyes to see as we think of the travesty that is abortion in our country, uh, that we would, we would take a stand, but, but even more so, Lord, that we would engage in ways that you put before us, opportunities that you give us to uh, stand up for what is right, to speak for the oppressed, to help those who have experienced injustice. And at the same time, Lord, for those in our midst who are the victims of injustice, who have been sinned against, who have experienced wrong, may they know you and see you as rescuer and redeemer. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are in the in-between time where Sarai found herself waiting. Lord, would you give us patience and trust to wait on you? May we not get too eager. May we not attempt to take matters into our own hands or solve things in our own wisdom or our own power. Lord, may we look to you as a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who has been proven yourself faithful over and over again. And Lord, for those in the waiting period, would you give a sense of patience and trust in your goodness and that your mercy never fails. And so build us up and equip us to go now and to live in a way that reflects this rescuer, redeemer God that we serve so that the light and the glory of the gospel might shine through our lives, that you might draw others to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.